Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by a partnership between Missio Alliance and Kairos Partnerships. Good morning, JR. Good morning, Doug. Always good to be with you. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, wow. It is hard to believe that this is the end of season three. Man, we're like out of the terrible twos. We're out of the troubled threes. <laughs> we're, we're moving on. We're moving on and up. Man, we, we you and I had a lot of fun just recapping and kind of going through each of the interviews that we've had. It's been quite a full and very rich and diverse season three. It's been fantastic. It, it really has been. I, I I feel like each each season has some. There are three seasons so far. I've had some really beautiful gems and just some great opportunities. I feel like our friendships have grown with new people. We've had some incredible guests. Um, what are some things for you that have really been like, or some interviews that have really stuck out to you or just ones that you've been sitting with still? Well, I mean, first of all, we never thought that, I mean, we always recorded like in my, in my office. Right. And yeah. so we never thought that we'd be doing this, um, not in the same room. It is. So weird. I think that's the first thing It's just that we're recording in our separate homes. Mm. Uh, so we've adapted. It's great. We're grateful for our producer, Joel Limbowen, who's done a fantastic job of helping us transition this way. But I think that's the first thing It's just kind of, I miss having you next to me here in my office, just at the table. So, um, so that's the first thing, but man, there were so many good ones. I, I think, you know, just recently, you know, we had Marty Solomon on, you know, just last week. I mean, uh, and then before that, we had Glenn Paw, and I think the the way to approach Scripture uh, was incredibly helpful for us to hear from Glenn and Marty. So mm. that really sticks out for me just initially of uh, the way we read our Bible and the way we teach our Bibles. So yeah, me too. I I really appreciated their perspective on Scripture, and um, yeah, just the way it, it. I feel like that's such an important space for us to continue as pastors, as leaders. Scripture has to stay central crucial as we grow yeah i think yeah, what about me, you man oh man well, what's the you? well first of all just the love and the wisdom from our sisters uh danielle strickland carolyn moore keisha polanyo um and we also had uh yeah sid sid, sid and jeff on oh yeah there's yeah. just so many good conversations i i still continue to think about um this story that danielle shared about her tattoo and just i like i don't know why but that really stuck with me maybe because i want to get more tattoos but i also just really appreciate the thoughtfulness and just uh it's like whenever i find myself in kind of the doldrums or a rough day, like I just think about the joy that she exuded and it kind of lifts my spirits, but there's just so many good opportunities there to learn. Um, I think too, like, uh, having, um, having, uh, Mako and Phil Monroe back to back, like the art, uh, of trauma and also just having some really good, uh, like, uh, practical teaching with how do we how do we care for people in grief and trauma situations uh, with both of those was just super super cool like really enjoyed those a lot yeah yeah Phil from more of the sort of clinical you know psychological side in, incredibly helpful and then yeah like you said Mako on a you know on the artistic side I, it was so important and I think you know 
it, when we're putting season three together, it, it wasn't, you know, there was no thought about a pandemic, but I just love that many of these interviews have been both timeless and timely, mm. even though they're within the pandemic. I, I think these are things we could be listening to years into the future and still find it to be incredibly relevant. So uh, it's just been another, it's just hard to believe another season is gone. I mean, we, it's, it's been so fun to do this and we just feel like we're just gaining steam here, which is just fantastic. So, um, yeah, a lot of great interviews and, and, uh, we look forward to just further learning. And with that being said, Doug, you and I are a bit giddy Mm -hmm. because we've got a bit of an announcement to make that we're super excited about. It's a little bit of a teaser. Yeah. And this interview today uh, with Jay Kim is fantastic and it's great and incredibly relevant. And I think it is both timeless and timely. And this is great to end season three, which is great. However, we want to make sure you don't stop listening in season four because week one of season four will be something you will not be disappointed about. Just trust us on this one, listeners. Just trust us. You will not be disappointed who we've interviewed. Yeah. I don't want to give any more, Doug. Is I that, know. Is there any, I mean, <laughs> it feels like drum roll, please. <laughs> <You know? laughs> this interview today is great, but just yeah. hang with us. You don't want to miss next week because, uh, oh, I just want to say it, but I'm not going to. It's going to be good. Gonna, <laughs> it's going to be good. It's going to be good. So, but we really think this interview uh, today with Jay, you're really going to love it as well. Uh, Jay was such a delight to talk with. Our guest today is Jay Kim. Jay is a staff pastor at Vintage Faith Church in Santa Cruz, California, where he oversees leadership and teaching. He also serves on a leadership team of the Regeneration Project and co-hosts Regeneration Podcast. Jay released his first book with InterVarsity Press called Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the Digital Age. Jay and his wife, Jenny, live with their two kids in the Silicon Valley. Please enjoy this conversation with Jay Kim. Jay, thanks for the opportunity to be with us here on the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. Yeah, absolutely, you guys. I'm happy to be on with you. So, Jay, I'm sure many of us have just uh, listened to your bio and people are like, who is this guy? Um, it's so good to have you on, but could you tell us a bit of your story? Sure, yeah. I'll just try to give you the short of it. I uh, I grew up in the Silicon Valley where I still live and serve. And so this is home and um, been here basically all my life. Uh, and uh, yeah, grew up with a single mom and no siblings. So it was a quiet house, you know, it was just me and my mom. And, and most of the time it was just me because my mom was working two, three jobs at a time just to make ends meet. So I, I spent a lot of time growing up with my own thoughts and, and books and all of that. And uh, so I, I, you know, started getting really comfortable in my own head. Um, I guess the one reprieve to that, I, I grew up going to a Korean American church. Um, and so for those who know anything about sort of the ethnic church, typically ethnic churches are more than just, hey, Sunday you show up for an hour and a half. Um, ethnic churches really become sort of the hub, the epicenter of your entire social life, becomes an extended family. And there's, you know, a variety of reasons for that that have to do with sort of the immigrant experience and all of those things. But um, all of that to say, I grew up at church all the time. You know, if I wasn't home alone, then my mom and I were typically at church 
for some reason. And so I was at church three, four days a week. And uh, all of that to say, I'm very comfortable in the church. And it's, uh, there's, a, there's a sort of familiarity with just being with church people, you know, that uh, is still a part of who I am. Uh, but early college, freshman, sophomore year of college, went through sort of the standard deconstruction phase where I, you know, read half of a philosophy book and thought that I can deconstruct 2000 years of Christendom and, uh, you know, went through that, but then through, um, some relationships with a couple of guys who really loved me and loved the Lord, um, journeyed back to what I would consider probably the very first time an encounter with the risen Christ and changed my life and launched me into uh, a, a vocational local church ministry. And so that's been the past 16, 17 years of my life, you know, serving in a variety of capacities at a few different churches, student ministries in college and church planting and, and all of that. So um, yeah, there you go. That's the short of it. That's beautiful, Jay. Thank you so much. Um, as I'm thinking about just you know, pastoral ministry going from a space, many of us been in that deconstruction space and um, finding hopeful reconstruction through mm-hmm. the risen King. Yeah. Um, and so we talk a lot about what are, what healthy rhythms we keep so we can stay in the game. 17 years is not a short time to be in ministry. And we call it the Monday morning pastor because one of our big things is like a lot of people experience Mondays as their hard days. And so just wondering, Jay, what does your Monday look like um, emotionally, spiritually? Like, how do, you, how do you handle your Mondays? That's a great question. Uh, and I think it's a question that so many pastors probably need to ask and we don't, you know. Um, and for me, I'll be honest, it took almost the entirety of those 17 years to uh, put into place practices and habits and disciplines that uh, disciplines is a weird word because it actually doesn't feel like discipline in the classic sense. It's a it's a joy now. But yeah, it took a long time to put some some habits and rhythms into my life, um, that I was, you know, militant about. So, but the last few years that's been the case. So Mondays, um, I, I spend the majority of my day, I have a little window of time on Monday, actually right after lunch, about one to two thirty or three, where I'll do emails and just set myself up for the week, but Monday mornings, and then the end of day on Mondays, I spend, um, reading and praying. And it's, you know, to be fair, and to be honest, full disclosure, in terms of amount of time, it's mostly reading and a little bit of prayer, but, you know, begin my day with prayer and my day, my work day with prayer, but it's a lot of reading. And I try, uh, this isn't always the case, but I try as much as possible to read, not for preparation, but to read for enjoyment and pleasure. Um, to fill my mind with the stuff of God rather than to fill my mind with uh, the stuff of church growth or sermons. And the two aren't opposed to each other, but there is a difference in terms of uh, desired end and approach. And so uh, because of that, I really look forward to Mondays. It actually feels very familiar to just my childhood in a lot of ways. Like I said, you know, growing up with my own thoughts and ideas. And so, um, Typically, I mean, not now because of coronavirus, but typically I'm in the office on Mondays, but most of our team knows that uh, Mondays are, are reading days and prayer days for me. So what are you reading lately? Oh man, that's a great question. Well, you know, this hasn't been happening in the office, it's been happening at home. Um, yeah, I've got this stack right above me. So I just finished uh, uh, 
couple weeks ago, finished a book by Carmen Imes called Bearing God's Name, which is fantastic book. It's theological, but it's really accessible. Um, I've had this book on my shelf uh, that I just finished last week. I had this book, um, The Allure of Gentleness by Dallas Willard that uh, I've been meaning to get to, but never had. And uh, I just finished it um, a little while ago. And uh, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be, but it was fantastic. Really short little book. And then I'm trying very slowly. I'm plodding through uh, I know this is in the video podcast, but I've been reading this for like the last uh, uh, few weeks or so. Paul, it's a biography by N.T. Wright. Um, it's hey, fantastic. Just a short little read. It'll take you a couple minutes to get through. Yeah, I'm just trying to read a <laughs> chapter at a time. But like, you know, Tom Wright, one of the things I love about him is he's obviously like top tier theologian, but his writing is um, he's like a fantastic storyteller. You know, you just get mesmerized by the narrative. It's just like, yeah, it's like reading a great novel. So, uh, yeah, those are a couple of things I'm reading. I'm always reading like four or five books at a time because I think I like jumping around. Mm. So uh, those are some of the main ones, a couple others. So, yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like a lot of the way that you care for your soul is really in the, the internal space of like using your brain and having opportunities with that and with prayer. Are there any other things that you do that help with soul care? Yeah. Um, I have a twice a month lunch at a Thai restaurant with uh, four other pastors in the area who are not primarily pastors to me. They're just dear, dear friends. Um, so uh, it's usually twice a month. Some months it's, it's once a month, but at, at minimum it's once a month. Um, and that's been tough now, you know, in the midst of COVID-19. So we've been Zooming uh, and, and chatting that way. And we're on a constant text thread. Um, so that's another big one. Yeah, just the relationships. You know, I, I'm by nature a fairly internal, I guess you would categorize me as an introvert. Um, but uh, even even internal introverted people like me, um, you know, it's not necessarily the quantity of relationship, but the depth and quality. We need some of that uh, in, in a significant way, at least. So I have that with those guys. Um, that's a big part of the rhythm for me. Uh, yeah, so there you go. I love that. There's, it's funny. I feel like in the last few months, the, the big thing that we've been hearing over and over and over again is the importance of friendships that yeah. you don't have a stake in the game. It's just dear friends, you know, whether it's Thai food, coffee, or mm-hmm. anything like that, that's, that's so helpful. So being, being in ministry, you know, growing up in the church, um, and, you know, being in this, in the game for 17 years, what lies are you tempted to believe about yourself? Oh man, so many, <laughs> so many. I'll just mention one that comes to mind because of the time and season that we're in right now. Uh, one of the lies that I have to battle all the time is that uh, my significance is bound up in the size of the room, you know, and the significance of the stage and the platform. Uh, my guess is that that's a familiar lie to so many. Um, not just pastors, but leaders, people who, uh, because of their role in any particular organization, maybe the job demands that you hold captive a particular audience for an extended period of time. That's something I think about a lot, you know, the, um, 
you know, the sermon and the act of preaching is something that I treasure and uh, hold in very high regard. It's an art form that I love. And uh, all of that being said, I also am very aware of how strange it is that people sit in a room and listen to me talk for 40 minutes. I, that's just not normal, you know? And uh, when I'm really, truly honest with myself, uh, in and of myself, there is absolutely no reason even one person should sit and listen to me talk for 40 minutes, you know, much less hundreds of people. And yet that, that happens. Um, and so if, if I'm not careful, when I'm not careful, I start believing the lie that my significance is bound up in that reality that, oh man, I'm important because I talk and people sit there and just quietly listen. That must mean that I have significance. And, uh, that's something that gets deconstructed pretty consistently, you know, and, and, and some of those friendships, uh, like I was mentioning, you know, the Thai lunch and crew that I have, that that's, it's so important in that way. Cause, um, they don't, you know, they're not captivated or mesmerized or impressed <laughs> by that work. Mm. You know, they just mm. care about me as a friend. And, and, yeah. and it reminds me of something that Henry Nouwen said, he said, we need people who don't need us. Mm. And, uh, yeah, just that idea of friendship and cultivating that around. I mean, gosh, I mean, Thai food by myself is good enough, but Thai food with friends is even better. So that's right. Uh, I'm that's so glad right. you have that opportunity. Yeah. Well, you wrote a book, and I, first of all, congratulations taking a book mm. across a finish line. Most Americans want to write a book, but to actually get around to doing it, uh, writing is easy. It's the editing that's so excruciating. <laughs> so I just am so grateful for you and this book that you've written, Analog Church why we need real people, places, and things in the digital age. I know I'm going to ask what a lot of other podcast interviewers have asked you, uh, is the unbelievable ironic timing of all of this, when we're forced to be much more digital than ever before, but you write a book that releases with IVP on Analog Church. So um, I know that I'm not the first to ask you that question, but what has it been like to release an analog, a book about Analog Church when the church has been forced online? Yeah, that man. Well, the first thing to say is, you know, as much as we'd like to, to, to say we had it all figured out and like, okay, we're going to leverage this opportunity. When we knew that, you know, we were going to begin sheltering in place, the publisher and I, we scrambled, you know, we had mm. all sorts of conversations like, is this the right time to release a book like this? Is mm. it, do we delay? Do we hold off? What do we do? What's, you know, is this uh, insensitive to the time or whatever, all of those things. Um, but in hindsight now, you know, the book came out March 31st. So like two weeks after we began sheltering in place, at least here in, in my part of the country. And uh, honestly, I, I'm really grateful, you know, um, if there was something I wanted to say in the midst of this strange time, I realize now looking back, the book is probably what I would want to say. Mm. Uh, my posture is different, you know, than when I was actually writing the book. Cause the writing process, JR, you know, this like it was two years ago, you know, mm -hmm. when I wrote those words long before COVID-19, um, so my posture is different, you know, but, but in terms of what I would want to say to people, it's still, you know, my convictions from this book hold true. And in some ways I think, uh, people on a, on a 
wide scale are viscerally feeling some of the angst that I've felt when I was writing the book, that while I'm incredibly grateful for the digital technologies which connect us, and in a strange way, even more so now when this is really primarily all we have, um, really grateful. But at the same time, I think most people can relate. We're already feeling sort of this the digital fatigue, you know, the sort of lack that there is when this sort of connection is the only connection we have. And that's really where the book came from. And in, in particular, it came from how that relates to how we understand what it means to be the church and the, the gathered people of God. Um, so, yeah, you know, obviously the irony is not lost on me, but it, it mostly the sense I have now is just a sense of gratitude that we were able to unleash this into the wild at this time um, to at least hopefully be a helpful word uh, in the larger conversation. Yeah. And so let, let me press into that a little bit more. Let's say the book were, let's say the book was scheduled to release a year from now. Hmm. You said the expression changed. And by the way, I love the book. I'm in full agreement of it. Um, would you change anything in what you wrote if based on what you know now, if you were still writing it and it released a year from now? Or would it be exactly the same? I think it'd be the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my convictions hold true. And, you know, um, and for those who haven't read the book, uh, you'll understand what I mean if and when you get around to reading it. But, you know, in the book, I, I don't, I'm not trashing digital medium. Yeah. I'm glad and, you clarified that. That was a question I wanted you to unpack was, are you saying all, all digital engagement exactly. and technology is bad? You're not saying that. So yeah. Right. Keep, right. Keep and I think, I think a lot of people assume that when they see the titles, like yeah. analog church, here we go. Here's another Luddite telling me throw away my <laughs> iPhone. And that's actually not at all what I'm saying. I, in fact, I think the book is pretty clear that I, like I said earlier, am really grateful for digital technologies. I think my concern, has to do with um, when we place things in positions of influence and power in our lives where they don't belong, mm -hmm. even helpful things turn incredibly harmful. You know, that a hammer in the hands of a really skilled worker is an incredibly helpful tool. But if I put that same hammer in the hands of, you know, someone who's inebriated, you know, or something, yeah. like it's, it's incredibly harmful. And uh, I think that that still holds true. My convictions hold true on that. And, and in many ways, this time that we're in right now is displaying both. And it's displaying both in a way that so many of us are viscerally feeling and experiencing on a deep level. You know, it's helpful as a medium for pseudo connection to keep us somewhat connected in this time of physical distance. But it becomes actually really hard, really even harmful when, as we're realizing when all of our connections are mediated by screen. You know, mm -hmm. because what it does is it raises this longing within us for embodied presence, which mm -hmm. is human. That's like that's a human longing to be physically embodied with one another, mm -hmm. and uh, anything digital just falls short of that. And that's the point I'm trying to make in the book. Um, so yeah, I don't think I would change anything. I mean, if anything, I'd probably add stuff about what this season in particular is making us aware of, but I don't think I would change any of the, the core ideas. Yeah. And that to me says that that's a very well thought out book. If you said everything in here, I would totally change it. I've changed my mind. 
that that's a different that's a different answer. But the fact you say, yeah, I'm not only believe in the message, but I'm convinced now more than ever. And I would agree. The Zoom fatigue that we're all feeling. I mean, I just told my wife this morning. Um, I mean, I I taught in an event, quote unquote, taught at an event today online. I'm grateful for that. But I said I just miss the like when I'm teaching with a group of people to see head nods and even people asleep to show me I'm not engaging with them, but that there's some feedback and handshakes and interaction and hugs and eye contact and smiles. We just miss that. It's just hard to to do this as grateful as we are. And um, coronavirus or not on the timing, I think some people might find it incredibly ironic that here you are in Silicon Valley writing a book about analog church as well. But, but, I'm so grateful for the thoughtful engagement. And if, if I'm hearing you right, you're, you're not saying technology is bad, but the lack of thoughtful engagement with it, of uh, really trying to think carefully about how does this interact with the good news of Jesus and how we interact with others. If we don't do that, then we're in trouble. So let yeah. me ask you kind of a pessimistic question. What are the dangers of thoughtless engagement of a digital church? A great question. Uh, I get into I get into it in the book uh, somewhat. Um, I think we have to be aware that the technologies we use, and I'm not just talking about digital technology. I'm talking about any technology, um, has a subtle way of forming us. It's usually subtle. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's it's quite sudden. But usually there's a subtle way in which the the technologies of the day and the ways in which we leverage those technologies and the regularity and um, uh, the desired ends of our use of those technologies, those, mm-hmm. those things all form and shape us, you know? Uh, so uh, you can think of like transportation technology as an example of this. Um, when I, and you can go much further back than this, but just to use my own life experience, uh, when I was first learning how to drive, I had this old beat up Honda Civic, this blue, you know, early nineties Honda Civic. And it was a manual, it was a stick shift. And I just remember sitting in a parking lot with my friend Isaiah, who was showing me how to drive manual. And I just remember like jacking up, you know, the transmission, like, so just grinding the gears and, it took immense amounts of skill for me to learn how to drive. And the reality is if you put me behind the wheel of a manual car now, I could still drive it because I drove that, you know, that manual transmission Civic for so many years. It's sort of, it's like in my bones, you know, Mm -hmm. I can feel it still, how to shift gears and all of that. Well, when you think about now, just fast forward, you know, two and a half, three decades, when I think about my kids who are really young, by the time they're old enough to get their driver's licenses, the the reality is it's very, it, it may not be likely, but it is quite feasible that they may not even need to get a driver's license. That we may live in a world in which like either self-driving cars or like Uber and Lyft and all those sorts of things are just so prevalent that they don't actually have to drive, you know? And the statistics are bearing this out. And what that does is when you think about transportation technology, what it means is because technology is moving at a particular pace, we are losing skill and strength. So my kids will likely never, ever learn how to drive a manual transmission automobile. Right, they'll never know that skill. For them, driving will be so different than it was for me when I was 16, 17. And uh, that's fine when it comes to cars. Like it's, I, I think it's actually beneficial. You know, the statistics show that self-driving cars might actually decrease accidents on the road. Whatever, that's great. 
that's actually hyper detrimental when it comes to the life of formation into Christ likeness, mm. because um, you have to get your hands behind the steering wheel of that process. And that's my great concern. If we digitize and automate everything about the church, right? If church becomes just consuming digital content that we can watch from the comfort of our own home on, you know, whenever, uh, if, if, if church becomes like a Christian Netflix where I can pick and choose my, the famous speaker that I want to hear and get mm. a little antidote of inspiration and then walk away and live my life, then it, we are becoming increasingly comfortable and we're losing strength and skill. Like where we don't have to shift the gears ourselves, but the reality is when it comes to um, formation into the image of the risen Christ, we have to get our hands behind the wheel. Mm. And I think that's my main concern, right? Mm. That digital isn't harmful by its very nature, uh, it, but it becomes harmful if we allow it to drive the trajectory of our lives rather than us driving, leveraging digital to move in a particular direction, um, to become more like Jesus together. And when I read the book, what came through were the words formation and incarnation. I mean, mm. just what does that look like in 2020? And I just, I'm so grateful for the thoughtful engagement uh, on that. You know, you met, you mentioned Marshall McLuhan, who is very famous in terms of this field and, and talking about media. And you mentioned the four laws of media, these four great questions that he asked. What does it enhance or what does it enhance, improve or make possible to what does it push aside or make obsolete? What does it retrieve that was previously pushed aside or made obsolete? And four, what does it turn into when pushed to an extreme? Those laws, uh, the four laws of media continue to be incredibly important, but I think we can make them four laws of media as they impact the church. Yeah. Where have you seen, uh, and it could be from your own church experience or your own life, or maybe on a more ubiquitous level around churches or in the country, where have you seen where technology has been thoughtfully and appropriately used? And then where have you seen it where it concerns you? That's a great question. You know, thoughtfully, appropriately used, I think even right now in the midst of the COVID-19 world that we're living in, it's been really fascinating and inspiring to see churches leveraging digital technology in creative, um, uh, participatory ways, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, there are always going to be lessons to be learned, and, and we always, you know, we're gonna we're gonna sort of fail our way to success sometimes. So I, I understand that, but but it's been really interesting for me to to watch different churches, not just say, hey, we're gonna record the preacher giving a sermon and just post it online and everyone watch it, but really push forward and say, how do we leverage digital in a way that it's it feels as participatory as possible. Uh, you know, so like Zoom small groups and Zoom classrooms with chats and conversation, those sorts of things um, have been interesting. I think that's a way in which we leverage digital in, in at least as healthy as possible sorts of ways in this uh, day and age, you know. But in terms of unhealthy ways, it's, it's what I said earlier. You know, I think a thoughtless careless, even reckless approach to leveraging digital is to think about it purely as a platform um, to extend content, 
You know, I think if we think about digital mediums as platforms to just get content out there, to me, when it comes to the church, that is a careless, thoughtless, and even reckless leveraging of the platform. Uh, it always has to be participation, not, you know, content dispersal. And um, whatever that looks like in your particular context, I think that's a helpful paradigm. One of the things that I loved in your book that you talked about was it's very uh, catchy mantra is very wise. Digital informs, analog transforms. And you talk about some of those shifts that need to occur, even as we think about worship together, which I love that chapter on analog worship. And just even asking, are we informing or transforming? You said, uh, does this entertain or engage? Are we inviting people to watch or to witness? Mm. Um, just some great questions of shifting from entertainment to engagement. Um, and then you talk about the shift that we need to, to have in our worship uh, in the life of our communities, the shift away from hype and happiness to that of joy and, mourn, uh, and mourning, and then this, the shift from digital sophistication towards creativity and artistry. I wonder if you could just unpack those two shifts and what that looks like of moving from hype and happiness to joy and mourning, from digital sophistication to creativity and artistry. What does that look like in the life of sure. the church? Yeah, well, I think the first thing I would say is it's not monolithic, right? I, I think all of those words have sort of an elasticity to them. And and there there is, I will admit, a subjectivity to to some of that idea. I think I was I'm just trying to create sort of a a, a large dichotomy. And what I'm trying to do uh there in that in that section of the book, if you think about the hyper-digitized church. In particular, because of the medium and because of the type of approach that the medium um, extracts out of us, uh, we feel like we have to grab people's attentions really quickly. Mm. And that's been, that's, you know, that reality of the digital age. And even, you know, before that, the broadcast age, when television became a thing, I think that's really where this was birthed. You saw a, an ecclesiological shift in the way churches began to gather, particularly from the broadcast era when televisions found their way into the homes of every American, basically. And then that's been hyper accentuated and sped up by the digital age. And what I mean by that is this. When you think about a classic television program, we don't necessarily watch those a whole lot anymore. If you think back 20 years and, and further, you know, television was, was set up in a way where it was like, okay, 30-minute uh, sitcom had a 10-minute introduction, a five-minute commercial, another segment of about 15 minutes, another five-minute commercial. And that's, that's almost exactly when we saw like church worship gatherings take on almost identical segmentation mm. properties, where it was like 10 minutes of an opening song, five-minute meet and greet or whatever, you know, 10 minutes of announcements and whatever else, five-minute whatever, and then a 20-minute sermon. Fascinating. It, I've yeah, never thought and, about that. That's fascinating. And that, that's been hyper-accentuated in the digital age because think about how quickly we scroll through media now. Like it sounds archaic to sit down for 30 minutes on Thursday at 8 p.m. to watch Friends or whatever. Mm. Like, mm. oh my gosh, I can't believe people did that. Why would I do that when I can just watch it anytime I want on Netflix? And that, if we're not careful, that influences our ecclesiology. It's mm -hmm. like for church leaders, what it does for us is it makes us hyper-anxious and it makes the way we think about programming, and I'm using air quotes here, mm. programming our church gatherings in a way where we feel like we have to grab people's attention. Mm. 
And what that leads to is the, the phrase I use in the book, hype and happiness. Like we feel like our gatherings have to hype people up right away and make them feel really happy so they come back for more, right? It's a, it's a dopamine hit mm. sort of mechanism. But the reality is I think the most human parts of who we are need a much broader, expansive uh, experience when it comes to hitting every part of human experience. It demands you know, joy and mourning and everything else in between. And I think the church has an opportunity to be that sort of space and that sort of community for people. Hey, bring all of your ups, all of your downs, all of your mountaintops and all of your valleys and everything else in between. And let's experience that together, creating sort of a mosaic of something that is really true to life, you know, Mm. the ups and downs Mm. of of life. And uh, there's lots of creative ways to do that. And really, it's going to take a lot of creative, prophetic, I would say, uh, and and, um, communal exegesis is going to be an important part of that, you know, exegeting not just the Bible, but exegeting your community and their stories and what they're going through, and then crafting all that we do as the church around those realities. Mm. Um, and that's hard work, but it's necessary work in, in my opinion. Mm. Yeah. After I read your book, I thought, man, Analog Church is the right title. But if there were ever needed to be another title, I thought, like, I guess you just had to be there. You know, just that <laughs> idea. Like, how many times do we say that? Like, you tell a joke and it falls flat. It's like, I guess you just had to be there. We're basically saying you needed to be incarnational flesh and blood in the room to really experience that, uh, which is great. So I'm going to read this paragraph. This is my favorite paragraph in the book right at the beginning. And then I would love for you to just unpack it a little bit more. And this gets to the everything that you've said, but I think it really brings out the sharp tip of the arrow of your conviction on this. You said, I believe the answer is to go analog. People are hungry for human experiences and the church is perfectly positioned to offer exactly that. In fact, The church is fundamentally designed and intended for this work to create spaces and opportunities for people from all walks of life to experience true human flourishing in real time and in real space. Unlike anything else in our culture today, the church can invite people to gather in the flesh and to experience the hope that Jesus Christ offers. That's a great paragraph. Unpack that a little bit more and maybe even more so not knowing COVID would be happening. Um, but how does uh, just hearing your own words uh, kind of read back to you? Uh, how do you want to just expound upon that or add some extra flesh to that? Yeah, I mean, we are the body of Christ, right? That's, that's the metaphor. Uh, we are the body of Christ. And if you think about how you think about your body, um, I, I sliced my finger yesterday or a couple days ago. We were um, noticing that, that wonderful Band-Aid. You yeah, I took my daughter's Band-Aid because we ran out of uh, <laughs> regular Band-Aids. Um, but, you know, I sliced my finger. And uh, certainly, you know, if you were to ask me in the moment, like, what happened, I would say I cut my finger. Um, but it, it was actually a fairly deep cut. I went to the ER and they had, uh, you know, thankfully no stitches, but it was glue. Uh, But the thing is, strange deal, uh, it was really sore when I cut the finger. Mm. And, you know, if you were to ask me how I was doing in the moments after I sliced my finger open, there was blood on the floor. uh, What I would not have said to you was that my right hand is doing great, but my, my index finger on my left hand is in a little pain. But everything else is fine. 
I, so I'm like, I'm good. You know, it's just, I got this cut. So my finger's not doing well, but I'm doing great. Like, that's not what I would have said. What I would have said is I cut my finger and it, it's painful. And what I mean by it's painful is like, I'm in pain, me, a holistic person. And it's not that there's pain running up and down my entire body, but because my finger hurts, what it means is like, I'm hurting, you know, and I need help and need to go to the ER and all that sort of thing. And I think we, we all sort of intrinsically understand that, that that's how the body works. And that's how we think about what it means to be a, a holistic, a unified, embodied person. That's the metaphor, Right? That is the metaphor that the scriptures use to describe the body. And yet in the digital age, for me, we're, we're losing that the more we lean into digital realities shaping what we think we, we mean when we say we are a church or, or, or phrases like, I go to this church or, you know, it's like, because now, like even in COVID-19, we don't actually go to a church. Now it's like, I watch this church. Like this is my church because I watch the thing on the screen. And uh, that, that is not wrong. It's just incomplete. It falls short of what it means to really be the church. And at the same time, listen, I totally get it. I understand that particularly in times like this, this is what we have and we need to lean into these realities. And I also understand, you know, like people will argue like, well, what about the underground church, you know, in parts of the world where it's illegal to be a Christian? And they'll say that all they have is sort of their own, you know, maybe the radio or whatever, you know. And I get that and I'm grateful for... Um, not just digital, but all sorts of technologies which have gotten the gospel into places around the world where it's dangerous to be a Christian. But, but if you take that story further, what you recognize about underground churches is what do underground churches do? Even at risking life and limb, they actually try to physically gather. You know, like we've heard stories from missionary friends of people in parts of the world who continue to gather literally in underground churches um, to keep from being found out and arrested, and yet they risk it all still to physically be with one another because that is the deepest longing in our souls, is to be embodied, incarnational, in the flesh with one another. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, could, I could go on and on. It's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, but there you go. Those are just some thoughts. Mm. Hey, this has been just so good. I feel like um, this quote kept coming to my mind from Winston Churchill. And he said, we shape our buildings and afterwards our buildings shape us. Wow. And I feel like so much of what you're, of what you're looking at is, is not just whether digital life is good or bad, but how's it shaping us? How's it forming us? So if you could leave us with just some encouragements for pastors as we're looking and, and leaders, as we're looking to say, how do we shape incarnational life with what we have at the moment? What would be some hopeful, simple practices we could be thinking through? That's a great question, Doug. Thanks, thanks for asking it. I, um, you know, there's a lot to say. I think the, the, the main thing I would probably say is this, the nature of digital media and the way digital technologies disperse information to us for a variety of reasons, some of which I get into in the book, the very nature of how we, we uh, get information and even inspiration through digital technology is through a very glossy, um, cleaned up veneer. 
if you think about even like, you know, the different feeds that you uh, are familiar with, maybe, maybe it's Instagram or your Facebook feed or Twitter or whatever. If you go on Instagram, most of the photos you're looking at, one, they're the highlights of people's lives. They're also you're seeing them through literal filters, right? Digital filters made to gloss up the imagery. If you look at Twitter, you know, that that little quip that was so clever that it was 140 characters or whatever, it looks like the person tweeted that just on a whim. And, and maybe every now and then they did. Most of the time, that person slaved over those 140 characters. So what looks in your experience scrolling through Twitter, like just a, a casual little thought that some brilliant person had, and you're like, oh my gosh, how'd they think of that? So they slaved over that tweet, right? Crafted it in such a way that made you think they're brilliant. Uh, because they were just able to put this thing out there so quickly. Um, but that's not, it's most of the time, that's not true. And so if you're a leader in the church or a leader of any kind, just know that digital media is coming at you hard and fast in ways that are designed to make you feel inferior. Like they're designed, it's designed to make you feel like you should compare the reality of your everyday life against the backdrop of everyone's highlights. And the, the truth is, if you were able to see behind their highlights, their reality is just as difficult and just as hard and just as painful and just as much of a struggle as yours. You know, that famous, you know, nationally known evangelical church leader that you follow on Instagram or, or Twitter or whatever, their life and ministry might look like it's incredible, you know, compared to yours. The reality is if you could see behind the curtain, they're just as much of a mess as you are and as I am. I think that's the first thing we have to recognize. And, and two, in light of that, what that then means is that we have to look past all of the glossy veneer that's coming at us so hard and fast and see the communities and potential and creative potential and potential for redemption and renewal and change that is right before us in our midst. The men, women, and children that we're called to serve. Because here's the deal. Like, it's easy for me to read a Tim Keller quote and ask myself why I'm not as smart and as brilliant and as dynamic as Keller or whoever else, name whoever you want. But the reality is I firmly believe this. I'm called to serve and to guide and to shepherd and to lead the people that I am called to lead here and now in ways that like Keller couldn't because he's not here, he doesn't live here, he doesn't know these people, he doesn't know, right? And vice versa. And I think that's really important. Um, so that's what I would say. One of the reasons analog is so important for me is because analog helps us to, to remove the digital veneer that um, keeps us in the rut of comparison, which so often leads to contempt. Uh, it can create us into copycats and then eventually we just become caricatures, right? We're just like, well, I'm not actually me. I'm just a caricature of some famous church leader I saw online. And that would be a sad and tragic thing for the church. You know, we need to be who God's called us to be for the people that he has called us to. And if we can do that, then the, the future of the church is incredibly bright. It's incredibly bright regardless, but um, it, you know, it gives me immense hope if more and more leaders can see past the veneer of the digital and lean into analog realities right in front of them. 
Wow. Jay, my head, my neck sore from nodding. Um, (laughs) I think like you just gave such a, such a gospel, the the gospel nuanced with hope um, for, I think many pastors who are feeling exhausted right now. And so would you just pray for us uh, just as we close our time together? Yeah, I would love to. Yeah. Thanks. Lord, we, um, we're incredibly grateful for um, your love and your grace in our lives and the ways in which those things lead us to the incredible truth that you're taking this story somewhere. And in this uh, moment of incredibly um, uh, incredible uncertainty and unknown, this liminal space in which we're living, uh, we're grateful that you are with us and that you've never left us and that you are still continuing to lead and guide us forward. And so we entrust our own lives and we entrust um, the lives of the communities that we love and serve uh, into your caring and capable hands. And um, we pray in particular for those who are uh, diligently and faithfully um, doing the work of serving and leading in the local church. And in particular, the, the majority of us who are doing that with little to no fanfare whatsoever. We just pray that you would um, instill incredible peace, incredible joy and meaning and significance and purpose uh, in the work of ministry uh, that we are doing, big and small. So we love you. Uh, we thank you. And we're so grateful that you are continuing to lead and guide in this time. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Doug, I loved talking with Jay. What a refreshing conversation. Yeah, so many good things to think about. I just really appreciate how he is helping us think through the importance of incarnation and analog, just what it is to be analog. So good. So good. So timely. It felt so timely and timeless. Yeah. And one of the things I loved about what he said is when, you know, knowing what we know now, would you have changed anything in the book? I love his answer. He said, nope, I would have my same message. And I think that's really important. That shows that it's not a faddish message. Uh It's a message that's here to stay because the whole world changed after he wrote it and it was published. And yet here we are, like he still believes in the message. Um, that shows me that that is a message of conviction and long last. And uh, I'm I'm really encouraged about that. So um, <laughs> share share a little bit of the irony of why it's so interesting. This is uh, just in terms of our recording <laughs> capabilities. I think our listeners will appreciate this. Yeah, it's so great that you are, you know, so his book, um, his book, Analog Church, you know, here's a guy who's talking about the importance of, of having real life face-to-face stuff, like not anti-digital, but you know, the woes of digital world. And we could not make an entire, we we couldn't record him. It took us so long to try to get all the technological stuff worked out. It's like... We had to he, cancel the first time and yeah. reschedule two weeks later. It's like he lived into the name of his book. It's like he made it so, and he lives in the Silicon Valley, which is amazing. It's like, I thought the internet bandwidth there is like completely different than where it is in like podunk lansdale we were thinking about either doing smoke signals next or you and i (laughs) looked up on our our uh horse and wagon and driving out to northern california to interview him in person but yeah we we, 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 
<laughs> we did actually say we should have done it like via correspondence. Like, <laughs> it'd be the longest recorded podcast ever in the history. We write a letter, goes through the mail, the Pony Express. He writes his response, handwritten on a piece of paper, sends it back, Pony Express. We thought about it, but fortunately, we we limped through and we're able yeah. to record it, no problem. So, you know, if, but if that ever does happen, we'd have to get like a sound, like a voiceover for. Like for the person reading Jay's part, that'd be cool. Like, I mean, we'd have to ask him, like, who would you like? Like, what kind of voice would you want? Like, Smokey or like Liam Neeson or uh, <laughs> Tom Hanks. That's Tom Hanks. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I got no, ice in my glass. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. No, it was a, but it was a great conversation. I I really think that this is so important. It's the thoughtless engagement with technology. And how it's um, shaping mm. ecclesiology and our understanding of what church is in in really damaging ways. And so I, I really am so grateful he brought back very thoughtful, purposeful, intentional engagement with technology. And then he kept saying, technology is not bad. Yeah. We just need to understand its right place. And I think about that sometimes when we talk about this idea of, well, how do we know the difference between what's good and bad? With my sons, we talk about um, how it's like fire. You know, fire in our fireplace is great. But when that log rolls out across onto our rug, uh, that's not great. And so Mm -hmm. as long as fire is intentional and purposeful to give us light and warmth and heat and a cozy environment, those are all good things. But when they're inappropriate and put in a different context, they can be absolutely dangerous and burn the place down. And I think in many ways, he probably could describe technology that way, that it's great. Let's just be thoughtful about where we're putting the fire log mm-hmm. and where we're lighting, lighting the match. Because if not, this could be very destructive for the church in the days ahead. Mm-hmm. So um, obviously the resource that we want to recommend is his book, Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places and Things in the Digital Age, published by InterVarsity Press. Fantastic book by Jay why Kim and uh, so grateful for him and his willingness to be on. So Doug, what are some questions that we want to leave our listeners here? Yeah, just two questions. And and a lot of it comes even around the importance of this is not just something that Jay said, but we've been hearing this over and over and over again in the last, in, in all three seasons of the importance of friends. And so just two real simple question, who are your friends? And what do you need to talk with your friends about? I know that that sounds super simple, but I feel like even in this season right now, it's just important to continue to sow into our friendships. Yeah. When I hear that, my first thought is, wow, that sounds like a episode of Mr. Rogers. <laughs> but then secondly, it sounds to me, I thought, um, yeah, but most pastors don't do this well. Right. And which is why we've got to get back to the basics of Christian friendship on this. So yeah, that's fantastic. You know, as we come to the end of season three here, we just want to say, Doug and I just want to express our gratitude to you. Thank you so much for another great season. Uh, We uh, just love the listeners. We love the feedback. Thank you for subscribing. Uh, And we want to hear from you. You know, we, we say that we mean that. And when we get emails and texts and responses on social media from you all, it is such a joy. And so please, not only do we want to hear like, what you're benefiting from, but how can we make it better? And also to ask, who would you like to hear from in season four? Mm. We'd love to, we, we love when there are recommendations and we meet new leaders and we engage with new leaders that we hadn't thought or uh, known before. And so uh, please let us know. And if you haven't before, can we just ask a favor of you? Would you be willing to write a review? If you have already done that, thank you so much. If that's not your thing, would you send this episode to just two 
leaders, pastors, or friends that you think would benefit from this. Uh, the way podcasts grow is by word of mouth and by hearing from listeners. And so we would love to just borrow 45 seconds of your time, whether you write a review on Twitter, uh, I'm sorry, on Stitcher or on iTunes, uh, but also on social media, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook Live. Uh, wherever it is. We just love the opportunity for you if you're benefiting from it to let others know. So, um, but Doug, yeah, send us out here. I mean, it's the end of season three, Yeah, but send us out, you know, with another reminder here. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it just, as you heard in the beginning, we are so excited about the beginning of season four. Uh, giddy is a good word. Um, <laughs> you don't want to miss the beginning, our first episode of season four next week. Uh, we promise you. Trust you us. Yes, please. <laughs> if you've never trusted us before, trust us now. You're not going to be disappointed. Um, we wish we could talk about it right now, but we are going to we're going to we're going to hold off like Christmas waiting. We're going to wait for Christmas morning, not open on Christmas Eve. So super excited for our yeah, for season four. And again, thank you so much for season three. Uh, and even just thank you to all our uh, all of our guests. We've really appreciated getting to know you all. Um, and so the benediction. So pastors, leaders, electricians, stay-at-home parents, and the friends and family of the Monday Morning Pastor, uh, may you go this week knowing that God showed up in the flesh, that he comes to us even now, that he is with us, that he is a God who is always present with us and to us and that he is for you. May you go with the knowledge that you are deeply loved children of God and that God sees you and he hears you and he is wildly in love with you. 